Okay, open up your Bibles. <coughs> to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. Be looking at the close of the chapter. Picking up from where we left off, I believe, several weeks ago. Talking about husbands and wives. So Ephesians chapter 5, starting verse 22. Ephesians 5, 22. And let's go ahead and go before the Lord and ask him to prepare our hearts. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for the love that you have given to us from even before the foundation of the world, from uniting us with Christ at that same point, and for drawing us into sweet fellowship with yourself through your son Jesus by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would mold our hearts and our minds, shatter those strongholds that are within us that are a propensity towards sin. To glorify you and to honor you forever. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So we're going to go ahead and read our passage, Ephesians chapter 5, 22, and then we'll do somewhat of a review since it's been a while since we've been together within these verses, and then we'll pick up where we left off. So Ephesians chapter 5, starting verse 22, says, Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. If you recall, several weeks ago, the main emphasis of looking in this passage of Scripture as we recognize that the vast majority of us within this room are not married. And so it'd be just as easy to gloss over these scripture passages until marriage preparation or perhaps even marriage itself and move on to something else. And in fact, we're coming up to Ephesians 6 and we'll also want to bypass the children obey your parents portion, right? Because that's not really a favorite subject of any of ours. And we would want to move right into the spiritual armor. That's totally where the legit stuff is at. That's where we want to dive right into. So we don't want to bother ourselves or bog ourselves down with the teaching or the message uh, concerning wives and husbands. But as we had looked at last time, there is so much to be gleaned from this and so much of an important application to each and every one of our lives, even if we're not married yet. And that was to adopt a particularly selfish spousal attitude. What I mean by that is what we talked about before, that we should have an attitude within each and every one of us that is, my spouse, I want my spouse. So I'm selfish for my spouse. That's who I want specifically. And so if I don't have a marriage relationship, the main emphasis of my response to this passage of Scripture is to look forward, to look yet future within my life, and to anticipate with some great expectation the reality of somebody coming along, not who's going to be a phenomenal spouse for me necessarily, but who I can be a phenomenal spouse for that we would adopt an attitude that would spend less time, not eliminate it completely, but spend less time talking about, Lord, bring me a good spouse, and would spend more time praying, Lord, make me a good spouse. Make me somebody who is fully capable, adequately equipped to be able to do these kinds of things for a spouse, either presently if I'm married or someday if I'm married in the future. 
And we understood that the world's attitude towards that is to specifically find somebody who becomes an object and a source of your own pleasure and your own satisfaction. And of course, in doing that, that's why you would see such high rates of divorce. And I do want to clarify that it's not 50% of divorce rates in the church. It's only 15 according to a Harvard study. So it doesn't happen quite as frequently inside the church as it does outside in the world. But the reason for that is the fact that people are set up as, as objects of their own pleasure. And so when those objects let them down, then obviously they don't want to consist in that kind of relationship. They want to move on. But embracing the Christian attitude of, I want my spouse so that I can ultimately glorify Christ, so that I can be a good spouse for somebody else, so that as I see from verse 22 to verse 33, the magnificence of what it must be like to experience my role, then I cannot help but want that. What it's like to be a wife who submits to, who respects her husband who glorifies Christ, who values Jesus so infinitely higher than her own temporary passing pleasures of sin or her own self-satisfaction or anything like that, and who looks to her husband as an opportunity to glorify the Lord. What must that be like to experience such incredible blessedness, such amazing happiness and magnificence in a marriage relationship that is transcendently more valuable than just simply temporary moments of peace in a marriage? What must it be like to be a husband who in our context is the sole representative of Jesus Christ in a marriage relationship? What is that like to be a husband who gets to rep Jesus within a marriage relationship? What is that like? So when you see those things, when you ask those questions, when you embrace those attitudes, it's no wonder that you would develop that kind of an attitude that would say, I want my spouse, I want somebody that I can operate and I can do these kinds of things in a marriage relationship. I can't wait if it's not already something that I can participate in. And then, of course, if I have the opportunity and I'm not fulfilling these things, there's always going to be that recognition that you're shooting your sights way too low in your marriage. You're shooting your sights way too low. You're living for a marriage relationship that is subpar. It is the bar being set way too low, and you're missing out on and wasting time uh, when you could be experiencing a transcendently valuable relationship that's not dependent upon the other person fulfilling their role, but is dependent upon you fulfilling your role, which is well within your ability to be able to do so, especially as a spirit-indwelt Christian. I want the glory of Christ. So we also looked at the concept of asking ourselves even the idea that if we're not married, we would ask ourselves certain questions pertaining to somebody of the opposite sex that we're possibly pursuing a relationship with or we haven't met yet, but we'll meet at some point. And so we would look to the qualities being displayed of the opposite role, of the opposite gender, and say to ourselves, that is what I would want. But I'm not going to settle for a lesser relationship. So I want my spouse teaches us that when we're in a relationship with somebody or potentially going to enter into a relationship with somebody, that we would think to ourselves, is this person going to demonstrate these things for me? Because if they're not, I'm about to enter into a relationship with them where I am, in a negative sense, stuck with them. Instead, we should be focusing on somebody who could fulfill these things within our lives, and then we wouldn't be recognizing this as a negative thing. We'd be thinking of this as a positive thing, not somebody that I'm stuck with for the rest of my life, but somebody I am privileged to have for the rest of my life. And so, uh, as a woman who is in the market looking for a potential suitor, Asking herself this question, would this guy love me the way that Jesus loves me? As a guy looking around for a potential helpmate, for a potential counterpart, would this girl follow me the way that she follows Christ? 
We looked at several things of answering that question, some of those questions there, looking at their relationship with Jesus. What does it look like now? What does their relationship look like now with the person they claim to be their Savior? Do they follow Him? Do they submit to Him? Are they concerned about His desires, Christ's desires, Christ's commands? And we looked at the idea of what we had talked about in Ephesians prior to this being a nice template for examining some of these things. Do they put off the old them? Do they put on the new them? <clears throat> do they hang out with Christians? Where do they spend their company? Be not deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So are they hanging out with a group of individuals that they're not really evangelizing even though they think that they're dropping the name of Christ or even even maybe they are preaching the gospel around these individuals that, that they're the ones who are on the up and up when it comes to influencing them instead of the other way around that bad company could be corrupting them? Do they hang out with Christians? Do they associate themselves with other individuals that would remind them of Jesus? <coughs> Excuse me. We looked at the idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit previously, not getting drunk with wine. Is this somebody who is intoxicated with some kind of a substance where they're not in control? Are they relying upon substances for their own pleasure? What is it that's going on within their life? And then, of course, one passage of Scripture that is so powerful and prominent and it's so often neglected, James 3.2, we all stumble in many ways, but if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. <coughs> this is what happens when you do some kind of extenuous activity, even for five minutes, but you're uh, out of shape like I am. There's like stuff that's settled in your lungs. And then it just starts coming up. Just a word of wisdom there. Be blessed. So ladies, that Mr. Wright, the perfect man, is out there. There is, and in fact, technically speaking, if many men would commit to the principles of James chapter 3, verse 2, and would control the things that they say, there would be a host of men to choose from. And you could simplify things down to what is your preference. And that's the place that you should be. That's the place that it should exist within the church, that there should be a body of believers that really, it's not a decision of whether or not this person is living rightly. Everybody should be committing themselves to the principles of Scripture, and the decision should be, which one would I want? Which one do I have a preference towards? And that would simplify this process so significantly. Do they rebel against authorities? especially pertaining to your youth group. It is a very commonly associated problem, especially of youth dudes, when it comes to the issue of authorities. Somebody who is bearing an authority within their life, their parental authorities, the law enforcement authorities, the educational authorities, whatever human institution that exists, their workplace, if they're working, are they in rebellion of these things? Do they contribute to the spiritual well-being of the church through ministry of some kind? And then we look specifically for the ladies, asking ourselves, did he exhibit qualities of giving himself up for the benefit and the betterment of somebody else? And one way that you could begin to see this is, does this guy, whoever, whoever it is that, you, that you're uh, seeing or whoever would come on the scene, is this somebody who inexplicably has no problem whatsoever giving up his time for somebody else. Now, of course, in certain circumstances, I'm sure, you remember the quote that we had looked at last week, that a true biblical man is somebody who is willing to halt his life to respond to his wife, that there's probably some practical ways of playing that out if the husband is a doctor and he's in the middle of open heart surgery and this person would die if he stepped away to answer a phone call to talk to his wife about going to stop at the grocery store to pick up milk on the way home there might be a better way of playing that out maybe having some way of 
of, of being able to communicate without having to communicate right at that moment. So there's practical applicational value and, and a very important need for men and women to begin to play these things out within their respective lives. But as a general rule of principle, a man who can give up his time is a man who will give up his time for you. And that's what you're looking for. That's what you would want. You want that guy to be like Christ and to be like God in the sense, in in other words, to be godly, to be an imitator of God. When he says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, that's the attitude of a man that you want. And then, of course, you can examine how he's going to treat you by the way that he treats Christian women in his life or women in general. Because it may be one way that he is treating his mother, his sister, or his sisters in Christ, and he treats them rudely and disrespectfully, but then when it comes to you, you seem to occupy this special place within his life, and he's all about you, he's all for you, but when you enter into a marriage relationship and you start living together, and he starts relaxing, the facade starts to fade away somewhat. And when he starts to become comfortable in a new living environment, the real him is very easy to come out, especially if he's not living under a James 3-2 mentality of controlling himself and controlling what he says. And imagine that. That's going to be so uber important if there's an argument or a disagreement or because, let's face it, ladies aren't perfect, you say something that is wrong or rude, or offensive, or disrespectful, a man who can control his tongue is the kind of man that you would want. Because you would experience safety and security in a man who's not going to respond with the sin that's in his heart, but respond with the Savior who's on the throne of his life. We started looking at men that, as you begin to examine this portion of Scripture, that as you pursue a woman... One of the greatest ways of knowing a woman who will submit to you completely in marriage is a woman who shows a degree of resistance to you now. I'll give you an example of that. And this was uh, an example that was uh, just right in front of me. You got to love walking along and illustrations just sort of happen. But we were at lunch last Friday night and there was this missionary group that apparently was trying to infiltrate Sweet Tomato. They're sinners too, I guess. But as they were sitting there, there was two individuals that seemed remarkably closer than the rest of the missionary group. And it was a youth group. It was a youth missions team. Don't know what they were doing. They had dream catchers on the back of their shirts, so you could probably deduce from there. But you never know. We're in a pretty weird ecumenical society and, and, and postmodern Christianism. And so you could probably have individuals that think dream catchers somehow is a nice logo for missions and you want to catch dreams or something. I don't know. But there was this group. There was these two individuals. They seem a little bit closer than everybody else. And they're, they're just sitting here. They had an ice cream cone and they're sharing the ice cream cone back and forth. And she is... Yeah, that is disgusting. So a woman who will not share saliva with you in any way is probably a good candidate. Because that's just gross. But it was like, oh, mm, yeah, and then she, she would look and then and then, and then he would go to town on it, and then she would participate in the ice cream cone as well. And it was gross because it started to melt, and you don't know what was melted ice cream and what was saliva. And as she would participate in that ice cream cone, it seemed like she was... In some ways, maybe flirtatious with him in the manner in which she was doing that. And I thought to myself immediately, I've got to tell the youth group about this. They're going to love every minute of this. That's what I do as I go through life. I say, what can I tell the youth group that will totally blow their minds? And so this is the revolutionary way of not dating. No thanks. It is totally NC-17 here. No, I'm kidding. We're going to need to edit that part out (laughs) and I thought to myself you see the the idea though and it's totally illustrated by this particular relationship is the fact that if somebody says to somebody else will you be my girlfriend and she's like yes 
and they enter into like this now committed dating relationship that there's so much restraint and resistance that is immediately removed and you think to yourself now I can hold hands I can cuddle during a movie we can so I've spit on an ice cream cone some people that's their thing And so, very important thing to think and to come to terms with, though, is the fact that those things, those cute little things that people do, and some people are grossed out by that, so they don't think that's necessarily cute. So this kind of application, they're like, I can totally do that. But the idea is, when you lift those restraints, you get into that kind of a relationship, then there's more opportunities to experience things that should be experienced in marriage if there's not a resistance to certain things. The benefits and the privileges of marriage, of a married relationship, of a marriage romantic relationship without having to have that kind of a commitment. When there's a resistance that takes place, it would prove to be very beneficial. These things will come naturally in a marriage relationship. There's nothing that you need to be taught ultimately when it comes to the physical aspect of a relationship. That's why in public schools, the idea of sex education is the stupidest concept that exists. Those things ultimately belong to the marriage. There is a sacredness that exists within those concepts. There is an appropriate that exists within certain contexts of the marriage relationship to discuss those things. Those things, and even the idea of other concepts of trying to, trying to mesh and mold personalities, and you're starting to find cute interactions through flirtations and different things like that. That's all something that you don't need to be taught. But in marriage, and here's the wonderful thing, you can learn those things from your spouse. You can find those things out and indeed, even saying this from a pastoral perspective, find those things out. Find what is pleasurable to the other person in a marriage relationship. Learn those things and have fun trying to figure it out. That's what makes a Christian marriage relationship so revolutionary and a God that is so glorified by it is there is so much pleasure and enjoyment to be experienced in marriage. But what's super difficult that we need infallible teaching that we need the words of God about is how to actually behave as a husband and a wife in a spiritual and meaningful and emotional sense. You're wired, you're programmed a particular way. Those things can come naturally, but when it comes to experiencing a God-glorifying, God-honoring relationship, something that magnifies His name, that makes His name famous, and that you can really ultimately experience the bliss that is being talked about within our text, is to learn these things and establish these things as a foundation now before you get into the complications of what a marriage would bring. Just did my taxes with my wife and we filed jointly. Had no stinking clue what that meant. You feel me? I'm sitting there staring at the screen and I'm going, and it asks like the stupidest questions. Like what, what is your expenses and your incomes and expenses minus the incomes and expenses times the amount of people within your house that you can claim to be a dependent? But uh, what is a dependent? Who's dependent on me? That's scary. And then what is my expenses over my expenses divided by my expenses plus my expenses? What are all these things that are you talking about? And it's a screen, so it doesn't even talk back. And it's TurboTax. And it's got all kinds of like pre-recorded things that don't make any sense. And there's a potential opportunity for me and my wife to be chewing each other out, especially because I don't know what I'm doing. And to fight over these things. And then, of course, when you're seeing, and I thought it said that this was my return, but it's what was due. And it was a, it was a very large number at first. And I thought, yes, rich. And my wife pointed out to me, that's what we owe. And I thought, no, dang it. <laughs> was that close to retirement? No, I'm that much farther. <laughs> when finances come up, when you're trying and you can't have a child it's been two years in 
one spouse finds medically they're the reason. When tragedy happens, when these kinds of things hit the floor, ice cream cone licking doesn't help. There needs to be a stronger and firmer foundation of what it means to be a biblical godly man and a biblical godly woman. So we look at how much does she resist engaging in activities that belong to marriage? And I get it. You know, we get together in relationships and, and it's fun and it's enjoyable and holding hands is a great thing and uh, potentially even kissing is perfectly fine. But the reality is, is that there needs to be a firm foundation of understanding what it is that I'm supposed to do as a Christian, as a, as a man, prior to marriage and in marriage. What am I supposed to do? When these things get real... When life happens and life gets real and difficult things and adverse things come along, how do I respond to this person who, as far as human relationships goes, is the most important person within my life? More important than grandpa and grandma. More important than mom and dad. More important than brother and sister. More important than anybody in the church. What do I do? And a woman who can, who can resist and who, who has a spiritual head in her father. And if she doesn't have a father, then she ultimately relies that much more upon the godly men of the church, especially eldership, to be their spiritual head, to be those that can guard them from areas where they're not supposed to be functioning, like Eve in the garden and discerning the temptations of Satan. She had a head that she was under. She had a protection that she was supposed to abide in. And that as she abides in her protection, it's not that she's flawed or that she's lesser than Adam, it's because she was programmed and she was created to fulfill a different role and a necessary role to be a strength and a support and an encouragement to Adam. And Adam could be freed up to be that kind of a protector. And she is all about spiritual headship and spiritual submission and obedience to the Word of God. And that's how you know that she would definitely follow and submit to you in marriage. We also looked at, this is a 25-minute review, sorry. We also looked at the concept that women, in demonstrating the attitude of, I want my spouse, means that they would become androphobic. And that was from the Greek word andros, that means husband, and phobic, that means fear, reverence, or honor. We saw First Peter 3, 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And so a woman, and it's Christ-motivated, it's gospel-motivated, it's hearing from Christ in his word, it's submitting to Jesus' headship and lordship that allows and motivates a woman to see her husband as valuable. To see her husband in such a capacity that she respects him, she esteems him, she admires his abilities, she admires his qualities, his achievements. She takes an investment in the things that he does, that he values. She takes an investment in his abilities and in his qualities. And in this way, she begins to learn some of the things that makes him tick. She begins to learn some of the things that he enjoys that are hobbies of his. She takes an interest in those things and she encourages him in those things. She's able to talk back to him in those things so that way she can have a conversation that gets her husband excited. She doesn't have to master these things or become amazing at these things, but she becomes interested in these things because they're her husband's things. If her husband joins the medieval guys dressing up and sword fighting and slaying pretend dragons in a park... Or literally in Dungeons and Dragons and 
their night elf hawks are level 30 and you're like oh man that's so cool it's so tight my husband he pones mad dubs and regulates their faces like faces are just flopping all over the place my husband is amazing in, in that capacity no matter how bizarre it is if, if you like these things it's okay we're not saying that there's anything wrong with you but you take a remarkable interest in the things of your husband and husbands this is something that you would do as well and that brings us relatively up to speed on the idea here for gentlemen. When you're embracing the attitude of, I want my spouse, I want my wife so that I can love her, so that I can represent Christ in a marriage relationship with her. And this is something that as we hear this as guys, that probably would make us increasingly excited there is a specific responsibility and privilege for you as a man to be like Christ to your wife. And if he is the most valuable individual within your life, that's one of the greatest things that you've heard. But I think there's a danger in hearing that in a marriage relationship. And it would play out like this. Many of us as dudes would probably love this idea and probably quote this verse over and over and over again. I'm supposed to be like Christ. I'm supposed to be like Christ. And I need to love my wife the way that Christ loves the church. And then we would stop there and we would say, I want to be like Christ. I want to represent Christ as the pre-incarnate Christ equal with God. And so we love our wives the way pre-incarnate Christ existed. And my authority is equal with God, and so we lord it over. We dominate. And then when she's not in line, we would say, submit. And we would want to bring this bride into submission by demonstrating our pre-incarnate Christ authority within her life. Or we would say, I want to be like the miracle-working Christ. I want to be like that Christ who went around, he healed the sick, he healed the lame, he healed those that had severe and significant ailments, he rose individuals from the dead, he raised individuals from the dead, he, he totally fed 5,000 individuals, possibly even more, from just a handful of fish and bread. That's the kind of Christ that I'm going to be for my wife. I want her to be astounded at me. As it says, the crowds were astounded at these things. They marveled. Or I want to be like debater Christ, who whenever anybody would try to trap him in an argument, he had such a trump card that he could bring against them. And he would say, this is how it is. And the crowds would then be wowed and amazed again. And he want, I, want to be, I want to be Jesus who could argue somebody into silence. But how many guys within this room are thoroughly prepared to be suffering men of sorrows and get all bloodied in the degree in which they will suffer for the sake of their wife. To represent Christ as a man has a specific context. Husbands, love your wives, verse 25, as Christ loved the church. And he died for her. It's not Christ coming in all of his glory in judgment or all of his glory in the receiving of his bride into eternity at his coming. It's not that kind of pomp and circumstance and magnificence. It's the humility of Christ that you are to regard as your way of loving your wife and that you would be the kind of husband who is willing to die if it meant that his wife would have even that much more enjoyment. He's willing to sacrifice. That's what being like Christ means. He's willing to sacrifice himself for the betterment of his wife. Now that doesn't mean that if you want to be a missionary, that if you want to be a pastor, that if you want to be a pro video gamer, or you want to be a businessman, you want to be a CEO, it doesn't mean you sacrifice those things. You give up your life in that respect. Because again, as she is in submission to you, your goals, your directions become hers. 
That's submission. That's, it's not leadership to ultimately abide by the goals and directions and leadership of your wife. That's contradictory to this passage. But what it does mean when your wife is upset about something that she gets all of you. It does mean that you would break your back in providing for her. It does mean that she is the most important person within your life to give up your life. It does mean that even in some circumstances, you would choose her over your friends. It doesn't matter how long you've been friends with them. When you get into a relationship with her, she is now your best friend. Your other, quote, best friends, those relationships have not changed. You've given up certain concepts within your life as a means of sacrifice. And it especially would be that you would turn off whatever filth that you're washing if it's something that bothers your wife. It does mean that sinful activities that you would normally participate in, they should have been sinful activities that you've repented of, but they are especially now activities that you don't want to bring into a home because your sacrifice for your wife means her sanctification. Your standard leadership attitude is not, I'm going to go out to the movies tonight whether you want a date night or not. I'm going to go spend time with the dudes whether you want to spend time with me or not. It is entirely, I will value what you say and your opinion above the rest. And especially, I am most concerned about your sanctification. A true biblical husband has one specific attitude first before and governs the rest of his attitudes towards his wife, he is most concerned about her being holy. The true testimony, men, the true testimony of you being a good husband and you having a good marriage is that year after year, your wife is more holy than when you first started. It's not a testimony to a good marriage if there's peace. If there's a lack of arguments, you say, we hardly ever argue We never get mad at each other. We never raise our voices at each other. That's not the mark of a good marriage. That's the mark of a marriage that really isn't even trying because when two people are trying to do their roles, there's going to be conflict. And from that conflict will ultimately produce a higher degree of intimacy in the marriage, which means conflict within a marriage is good. It's your sinful responses to conflict that are bad. But you can begin to very much so measure the success of your marriage if you go year after year and you make it year after year. And year after year, as you examine your wife, she is more holy than when you started out. And in fact, she looks more like Christ than when you first started out. And in fact, ladies... As much as it is this amazing concept within our text that guys get to represent Christ in leadership, you actually do represent Christ in submission. The same kind of submission that Jesus has towards the Father. So submission is not a lesser thing. It's not an inferior thing. It's a Christ-like thing. Guys, it looks like a firm foundation in the Word of God. It's sacrifice, it's sanctification, it's purification, and it's foundation. Sanctification, I want her to be more holy, so I will do literally whatever is necessary for her to end up being more holy than she was before. And there's a purification that is based on this foundation from the Word of God that talks about a washing Are you willing to commit to washing your wife in the Word of God? Do you know enough of the Word of God to pour it out over her like that? So that she could be surrounded, she could be encapsulated, she could indeed be drowning in how much Word of God you are giving to her. And in fact, even on that note, that's a necessary quality as a leader in your family when children come on the scene. 
One thing that I have always found to be incredibly grievous is when I've gone over to people's houses that are married, they've got children, especially when there's a dad who has a son who, what does he want to do? He wants to be just like his pops when he grows up. So he sees his dad playing these horrible video games or watching these terrible movies, and the dad is sitting there going, no, go away, go away, go away. And that kid is conflicted because he wants to be like his dad, but he also wants to obey his dad, but he wants to be doing these things that his dad is doing, and his dad's not concerned for the sanctification of his children, let alone his wife. That's failure. It's a valuing of holiness and spotlessness. The whole reason why Jesus Christ came was to make his bride spotless. Your role as a man is to participate in the very same activity in a one-on-one relationship with somebody who belongs to his bride, your wife. And it doesn't necessarily have to look like organizing a Bible study for you and your wife to go through, though that's probably one of the best things that you could do. But it definitely means that regardless of the circumstance, you have an initial response from the Scriptures. So that when the taxes thing hits, and taxes really are just so horrible, (laughs) that you have a biblical response. Like even a Romans 13 response. Render Caesar that which is Caesar's. Pay the tax that are owed. We're doing this not because our Caesar really deserves these things, but because our Christ had specifically taught these things. And his apostles had taught these things. And that we have an opportunity to glorify God through paying taxes. So no matter what it is, no matter what the response is, no matter what the circumstances are, we would have a biblical response. We would have a biblical response to our wife's reactions, to our wife's attitudes, to the moon sweets, to the hormones, to all the different things that a woman experiences. And it's all great because that's how God created her. She's a creature to be experiencing life this way. She's sensitive, sure. That's a good thing. There's some women that even are extra sensitive. That's perfectly fine. That's it's your wife. And so you want to wash her with the word. It looks like protection. It looks like nourishment. It looks like valuing. And it's a fantastic principle because you have an illustration for you within the text. What is it that we would do towards our wives that we wouldn't do towards ourselves? Would we harm her? speak ill against her because the text is saying that really the stupidity behind that is the fact that you are doing that ultimately to yourself. It's a husband who knows the gospel. It's a husband who knows Christ. It's a husband who loves her the way Christ loved the church. It's a husband who loves her the way that he loves his own body. He takes care of his body. He makes sure that his body is clean, that his body is pure. At least that's what a godly man would ultimately do in a spiritual understanding. He, he would take care of himself. He would make sure that he's not lacking in his needs. And so when he becomes married, he takes that attitude that would normally be towards himself and he puts it onto his wife and to the point in which he is self-neglectful taking care of her and making sure that she is nourished and completely provided for. Now as we close here, it's important to recognize one of the most significant aspects of our text, which is marriage is not intended for you as your happily ever after. This is again kind of a correcting of the understanding between what the world sees as marriage, what we see as marriage, because the world sees it like we talked about before in Disney. This is happily ever after. You you go around and you find somebody that you love and you fall in love and birds are chirping and singing and, and it's so wonderful and there's rays of sunshine to emulate happiness. And the clouds part, and there's rainbows, and it's a brighter atmosphere when you meet the person that you love, and then you fall in love, you get married, and then that's when the story ends. It ends as you as the ultimate end of marriage. And marriage is not about you as an ultimate end. 
you are a tool to achieving the ultimate end and purpose of marriage. Notice in verse 31 through 33, in verse 31 from Genesis 2, one of the most quoted marriage texts of all time. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall hold fast, he shall join, he shall cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. It's so profound that I'm just kicking pens and throwing papers around. It's so profound. This mystery is profound. Now stop there and remember, we talked about mysteries in Ephesians. What a mystery is. A mystery is one of the pleasures and treasures that is experienced in God that was hidden from the Old Testament saints, that was hidden from uh, the lack of revelation. And then when Christ came on the scene, he made these mysteries known, or he gave these mysteries to his apostles to make known. And so it's communicating something amazing about God. That's what this mystery is. But this mystery is marriage. That's what he's referring to as a mystery. That marriage is a mystery. Marriage is something that was hidden and the meaning of it had something to do with God. And he says this one is profound. There's a degree of profundity. That's a real word, trust me. There's a degree of profundity that exists in the subject of marriage. And Paul says, I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So that, goal, that quote from the Old Testament, back in Genesis 2, when God brought Adam and Eve together, and, he, and, and God performed the first marriage ceremony, saying, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He was ultimately saying that that referred to Christ and the church. And then he follows up by saying, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. So the ultimate goal, the ultimate end of marriage, the ultimate purpose of it, is to be a visible demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's to be a visible demonstration of Jesus' love for his church, of Jesus' sacrifice for his church, which even means that we really need to get this that much more. We need to have this down that much more because if we don't, we're being dishonest about the gospel. Which in some ways is a very important concept to think about if we go into marriage thinking about it as a Opportunity, or that there could be an opportunity in this marriage for it to end. Jesus' love for the church and commitment to the church is a never-ending commitment. And we may talk about biblical reasons for divorce, but Jesus said from the beginning, it's not that way. Christians are Christians who should be redeeming the subject of marriage and taking it so seriously and being so well-equipped in it to understand what their role is that they would have such a lifelong commitment. Because marriage is about the glory of God. Marriage is about the gospel. It's not created for the temporary fulfillment of a man and of a woman. And it even wasn't necessarily committed so that God could propagate the race. He created Adam and Eve and he needed them to procreate so that that way there would be people that would populate the planet. And even though there's that specific command, that's what they should do. This God who just created human beings from nothing didn't need marriage as an opportunity for the rest of the planet. But that was his design. That was his created order. But that was ultimately to be a demonstration of his son's love for his bride. We're out of time here. There's no greater initial response to the Bible's teaching on marriage than what the disciples did in Matthew 19, verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Now most, if not all of them, at some point at least, did end up being married. So when, when they received the Holy Spirit, when these mysteries were lifted ultimately, that's when they began to understand this entirely correctly, and that's when they began to pursue it. It's like Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 7 that we should be as he is, single at that point. 
But that's in order to begin to experience maturity in our faith and the ability to control ourselves and to not engage sexually in relationships with other individuals. Because in 1 Corinthians 9, he defends his right to be married. So obviously he values marriage. But he's saying that in order to do that, we need to be under control of ourselves and we need to be mature in our faith. And we need to understand that marriage has an ultimate purpose and that purpose is not my temporary happiness. Purpose is not me ultimately falling in love and staying in love. In fact, staying married isn't necessarily about staying in love. Staying married is about the glory of Christ. Staying married is about the integrity of the gospel. Staying married is about living for a relationship that is transcendently and infinitely more valuable than just simply any kind of temporary feelings or happiness or moments of joy. And that to truly experience joy within a marriage, you would experience it from the perspective that the glory of God is most important. I appreciate you guys enduring. Let's go ahead and finish there. Father in heaven, we praise you for the words of your Holy Spirit that the Apostle Paul penned. So Father, we pray that you would install it within our hearts that we would want to be like this. And that first, it may be that we would need to progress in our holiness and in our sanctification. And we praise you that you have granted us the grace that as you have began a good work within us, you would carry it through to completion through your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we pray that you would do that. And we do pray, Lord, for those within this room, those that are married, we pray that you would strengthen their marriages, draw them closer to you, and draw them closer to each other by that. We pray for those within this room that are pursuing marriage, that, Father, you would equip them and strengthen them in your grace and cause them to be effective in their roles. And Lord, we pray that you would indeed be gracious and merciful to them and grant them the privilege of marriage within your time and according to your will. And Father, for the rest within this room, that we pray for their future spouses and for those future moments in which they would be pursuing marriage. What a, what a blessing that awaits all of us. And so we pray for grace that they would be able to endure their singleness and be single well unto your glory and that you would grant within them the hopeful expectation of a spouse someday that you have prepared for them and that you indeed are preparing for them. You are allowing them to suffer and to go through trials. You are allowing them to sit under teaching and be trained and educated, or you are allowing them to continue to witness the horrendousness of their sin presently and that you are going to save them and disciple them and train them up. And then at that point, they would be ready to be a spouse. So we pray, Father, for patience where patience needs to be. We pray for grace where it needs to be in those preparing. And we pray for grace in those who already are married that we would all seek and strive to glorify you. We do pray that you would provide spouses. We do pray that you would strengthen spouses. And we do pray that you would glorify your name in each and every one of our lives so that you would be most important, your name would be made famous, and we would be well-blessed and, and honored and privileged to be a part of the glory of the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen.